Blog Talk Radio. Technology Espresso Cafe. Here we serve up stimulating conversation, and that's S-T-E-M, stimulating conversation. Um, we're very excited tonight to have Dr. Juan E. Gilbert of Clemson University. Um, first of all, welcome, Dr. Gilbert. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Uh Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jacqueline Sanders, and of course, my co-host Dave Blackman. <laughs> we're as always, we're always excited to serve up new and exciting topics, and and uh, our guest tonight is, I think, is going to give us a lot of food for thought. First of all, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Juan Gilbert. He is a prominent American computer science researcher, inventor, and educator, a staunch advocate of diversity in computer science. Gilbert's successful efforts to increase the number of underrepresented minorities in computer disciplines have been recognized by professional engineering organizations and the United States government. Um, the number of accolades and awards are, are so numerous, um, specifically in honor of both his accomplishments and his service to the university. Gilbert was awarded the first president endowed chairman of Clemson University on, in November of 2012. Um, Dr. Gilbert currently serves as professor and chair of the Division of Human-Centered Computing at Clemson University. And let me also add that he has his Bachelor's of Science from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. He also has a Master from the University of Cincinnati and has his Ph.D. from the University of Cincinnati as well in computer science. Wow. So, again, <laughs> very impressive. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Gilbert. Oh, thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, absolutely. So, actually, we're going to ask you to, to take us back. What sparked your interest in computer science and, and obviously a love and a passion as well? Can you take us back and, and tell us your journey that brought you to where you are today? Certainly. Well, uh, as a kid, I had a I guess a love for science, but it was a little different. Uh, when I was growing up, I watched sci-fi movies, and there was always this guy who wore this lab coat who was the smart one, who saved the day all the time, and I thought that was really cool. So that started my interest in science, and my as an undergraduate, my major was initially chemistry, and I was really good at it. But one day... A senior told me, he said, Juan, you're good at chemistry. You're going to do well. You'll graduate and go to graduate school. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. Go where? He said, to graduate school. See, I was the first person in my college to go to, I mean, my family to go to college. So I didn't know anything about graduate school. I thought you go to college to get a job. So when he told me that's what the chemists do, I changed my major to computer science or systems analysis, because I knew someone who just graduated and got a job at that, and I liked, you know, programming. And so I thought that would work out better for me. So that started me down the path of computing, which was basically an attempt to avoid going to graduate school, and we see how that worked out. <laughs> Isn't life ironic? <laughs> Very much so. But... <laughs> But apparently there was something that, that really spoke to you uh, about computer science 
and especially the the innovation um, um, piece of it as well. Talk us through, you know, after you got your Bachelor's of Science, how did you find your way now at a, a Ph.D.? Well, I had gotten my, I was in the process of getting my bachelor's degree, and I won a scholarship from uh, NCR Corporation and, in Dayton, Ohio. And that organization gave me a scholarship, and with that came internships. So I went and did an internship there. Again, I'm a first-generation college student, and I went to the job first day. They gave me something to do, and I did it very well. And I said, all right, I'm done. It was before noon. I'm going home. Because in my mental model, you do your chores, your work, and then you go play. They said, no, you got to sit around and look busy. This is business. So I didn't fit very well in that atmosphere. And so I went back to Miami University that fall, a little discouraged about my outlook and future. And a professor told me, uh, I was in his class, Dr. David Haddad, he pulled me aside and said, Juan, you know what? I think you'd be a good professor. And at that moment in time was the first time in my life I ever considered a career as a professor, and primarily because I had never seen an African-American in computer science, let alone a Ph.D. So in my mind, it never occurred to me that that was an option for, for me. So I went and did the research, found out what professors did, and said, wow, this is a career I could get into, but I had to go to graduate school. So although I love computer science, it was something that I could do passionately, and I was very good at. And I ended up going to graduate school, and I loved graduate school. Graduate school was not like undergrad. It was very different. And... Um, it was a time for me to really grow and uh, sharpen my skills in computing. And then as I was going through this, I discovered I had picked the right discipline for me, uh, primarily because computing is so pervasive. It's everywhere. It's in everything. So I had done something that allowed me to be what I always wanted to be, which was that scientist. When I looked at chemistry, I liked chemistry because chemistry involved everything. And now computing is the same way. So it all worked out in the end. Like you say, life can be very ironic, and it worked out for me because I was able to find my passion and, and with respect to something I really love to do. My job is is not that difficult for me uh, as far as a labor perspective because I love what I do. So I'm very passionate about it, and I found my passion, and it worked out. Well, uh, I must tell you, Dr. Gilbert, you're you're extremely fortunate. Not many people find their passion, and and they're really good at it, and and where and especially a passion that enables you to give back so much to the community and to the education um, uh, environment. Uh, the young people that you come in contact with today, the young college students, and probably even some high school level. Uh, individuals, how do you uh, how do you reach out to them and get them uh, excited or interested in the STEM careers and technology or even chemistry? I don't know if you're trying to pull anyone into chemistry, but how do you get the uh, how do you get the young people involved and engaged? Mm-hmm. Well, we are very passionate about that, uh, and from my personal experience, as I mentioned, uh, when I was getting my PhD. I was isolated. I was the only African-American at Cincinnati. I was the only African-American that I knew of getting a Ph.D. in computer science until a year before I finished. So from high school to Ph.D., 13 years of work experience and all that, I had never met an African-American with a Ph.D. in computer science. So I was isolated, and I decided that when I graduated, I would not allow anyone to be isolated like that again. So in my graduate program, I would always bring in at least two uh, people from underrepresented groups, African-Americans or women or whatever. So fast forward to present day. The way we recruit is we do it through a couple of means. Uh, We live by example. So letting people know who we are and what we do, that's very important. So we often say if they see it, they can be it. We need to let kids know that we exist. Uh, The... The literature tells us 
that the average middle school kid today, if you ask them who was a scientist, what's a scientist, they will tell you that it's an introvert, antisocial guy, white guy, married to an unattractive wife. And those stereotypes really don't fit us. And so we just go and let kids know who we are and what we do. So how do we how do we do that and how do we get to where we are? Well, let me give you a couple examples. First, uh, at Clemson University, we have the largest number of African American PhD students in computer science in the nation. Uh, we have more than 25 uh, African American PhD students, and the next closest university has eight. And then after that, the next is uh, I think at uh, four. And then after that, it's two or three. So we, we're we very large and unique in that respect. Our PhD program is the only one in the nation that's majority African-American, majority female, and majority domestic citizen. Uh, our faculty, we have six African-American tenure-track faculty. It's the only research institution in the nation with those numbers. So we've been able to recruit and live by example. But you say, well, how do you let the masses know? How do you get to the kids out in California and Texas and Wyoming, et cetera, Iowa? Well, it's hard to do that. We can't go visit all these places. So we did something that is a little unorthodox for people in our discipline, but we're the only people in the nation that could do this because we're so unique. I decided a year ago that I would try and reach those kids and reach people and say, this is who we are and what we do. Look at the research we work on. Look at who we are. So I hired a, a video team that followed us the last year, and we launched uh, a web series called Lab Days. That's Lab, D-A-Z-E. And you can find us at labdays.com. And so we release, release an episode uh, every week on Thursday in the afternoon that showcases individuals, our projects, uh, it tells you what we do, who we are. So now what we're doing is we release that to, to expose these elements of, of, of the PhD and who we are, but we're also treating it as a research experiment. We're looking for teachers all over the country to take and take these web this web series, show it to your kids, and we're going to survey kids and see if the perceptions of a scientist change after watching lab days. So if you watch Lab Days, will it change your perception of what a scientist is and what we really do? So these are some of the mechanisms we, we use, breaking down stereotypes, showing them that science is exciting and fun, actually exposing them to who does it and how it's done. And, and through these mechanisms, we are able to recruit and be successful at, at changing perception. So that's, that's what we do. Wow, that's that's fascinating, Doctor. Uh, and I couldn't agree with you more about reaching out to young people. And at the uh, at the national conference, the BDPA national conference in D.C., where we met Kyla, uh, our guest speaker was Roland Martin, and he spoke specifically about changing the face of IT and not being a, not being afraid to share what we do and our accomplishments with the young people. Because he, when he go out the speaking engagements at colleges and at the uh, at high schools, they would actually ask him how much money he made, and they would ask some of the other guest speakers and professors and scientists how much money they made. And of course, you know we're all we're all humble, and we all want to show that humility that humility that which is who we really are. And we say it's not about the money, but for the young people, the kids, it is about the money. They, the money is what drives them uh, into certain uh, areas of of, uh, of accomplishment. And so, uh, Roland said, "Don't be afraid to tell these young people how much money you make, because that's what's going to drive them to IT. Uh, and not only that, um, you know, changing the face of IT. It's not just." old white guys in lab coats. You know, right. we're all geeks. <laughs> we're all geeks. And we, and that's kind of my motto, uh, changing 
the face of geeks. We're geeks, and uh, so 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 we're not those guys with the wiry glasses and the rocket protectors. You know, we're, we're all geeks, and we're we're not afraid to say it. And incidentally, Lab Days, we featured Lab Days, and Jacqueline, she's a she's a almost a web junkie. She loves finding this stuff out there, and she featured it on our website. Jacqueline, tell us what you found about about Lab Days recently. Absolutely, and, and again, that that's how we actually. Uh, my, my tie-in to uh, Dr. Gilbert was um, I thought that the last days was very fascinating. And to our listeners on the radio show, make sure that you look for it. Um, you can find the link on Technology Expresso. And I think that's one thing that we have in common also with, with Dr. Gilbert. This show, again, is intended to, to expand the audience. We were just talking about, as you said, uh, in your home, and we're sitting here in Atlanta, we're able to have this conversation. And I think of Technology Expresso Cafe as this virtual cafe where we can sit, have this conversation, and people can kind of eavesdrop in and hear some of the things that, that we're exchanging and talking about um, so that more people hear about wonderful things like Lab Day. So we're, we're more than happy to support you in, in any way that we can um, because I really like, you know, the concept, the how innovative you were uh, about trying to expand your reach. So, so much applause to you, uh, Dr. Gilbert, on that. And, and I think al along that vein, uh, uh, again, tell us what you're finding as far as, you know, the, the students responding. Are students getting it? Um, I'm sure certain ones, and I think that you're, um, you know, if you can see it, you can be it, I think is, is a great way to, to put it and promote it. Um, do you still think that there's some resistance, or do you think the tides are about to change? What, what's your your feel? It's changing. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting. So I, I, I like to always cite an example. When President Obama was elected, you remember the picture of him in the White House. It's everywhere now. Of the little boy, the African American boy, touching the president's head uh, because. The, the, the kid wanted to make sure, are you like me? And we have encounters, not necessarily kids want to touch our hair or anything, but we have encounters like that. People look at us like, you really do what? I mean, I've, I've walked into rooms and I've had kids uh, look at me and say, uh, are you a preacher? Are you a lawyer? They go through this whole list and then by the time I tell them what I am, they look really strange. Um, it, it is one of those things that uh, I've experienced time and time again, but I do believe the tide is changing. I do believe it is changing. So uh, I haven't given up hope, and I see Lab Days is a vehicle in inspiring these kids and showing them. And, and, and Dave, you're right. They ask, well, how much do you make? They ask me that all the time. And you have to tell them. Because if, if they don't get it, you know, they walk away. You, you have to give them what they're asking for and help them find their way. So uh, I feel like we're being more successful in, in our endeavors, and I do see kids moving more and more in our direction. Uh, every, every day we go out there and a kid meets us, it's one more kid that now knows I can actually do this. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and and that's one of the things that, again, we are both passionate about. We're, we're both uh, IT professionals. And everywhere I go, every chance I get, I tell people, I love what I do. I do. I, I really enjoy it, um, the, you know, uh, the majority and, and the aspects of my job because there's a lot of creativity uh, in computer science. And, and you know that better than, than most probably because you've uh, been an innovator in a lot of different areas. So, I don't even know. Do you, do you have a favorite? Do you have one you want to, you know, that you really want to start with? Because I have a whole list here, so I can go in whatever order. But tell us about one that, that that you're really excited about right now. So let's see. Well, I'm excited about all of our projects in our lab. Um, I, I guess I would start with our voting technology. That would probably be the appropriate thing to start with. It's something that I'm excited about, that we're doing, that I think is actually changing the world. And, and in our lab, we actually have on my wall a banner that says, Change the World. Because when our students come in and everybody comes to the lab, 
they understand that's what we're trying to do. So what we did was 10 years ago, we created a voting technology called Prime 3, and that stands for Premier Third Generation Voting uh, Technology. And that was a decade ago, and that system uh, became the world's most accessible voting technology ever, meaning more people can privately and independently vote using this technology than any other. I mean, people that can't see, can't hear, can't read, people without arms can all privately and independently vote on the same machine as anyone else. We created that technology, and we were awarded a $4.5 million grant by the United States Election Assistance Commission to do research with Prime 3. Now, when we created Prime 3, we were told conventional thought was that you have to have an accessible voting machine. You can't have one machine that everyone votes on. And we said separate but equal doesn't work. So what we did, we created one. Now, fast forward 10 years later, the new voting machines that the manufacturers are making are all universal design, meaning they're moving them to uh, one machine for everyone. So we, the state of Oregon, we used it in the 2012 presidential primary. Uh, we have upcoming April 1, 2014 in Wisconsin. There will be counties using Prime 3 uh, in a pilot for their election on that day. We've done research on uh, to make voting faster. Remember President Obama said, those long lines, yeah, we need to fix that. And we've done that. We've created a process called balloting that allows you before uh, election day, go online. Imagine you can take your phone or go online, fill out your ballot, and instead of printing it, it gives you a QR code. Well, what is in that QR code? You can scan it and look at it and show you the ballot. But then on election day, when you go to vote, you walk up to our machine. You scan that QR code, and it brings up the review screen with those selections already in it. So if you want, you can change your vote at that time if you choose to do so. If not, you, you can submit it. So what does that mean? We did studies and show that that can significantly improve voting. Well, we took the presidential ballot from Broward County, and it takes about five minutes to fill that out on paper, four minutes on a machine. But using balloting, we can get the same thing accomplished in less than a minute. So we can speed up voting. Uh, we did studies on uh, photo ID, and we have a paper that's coming out about that. So you, you hear the state talking about we need photo ID to make sure people are who they are. Well, our study suggests that uh, it's pretty much the opposite. Um, we we took did a study and we were able to identify that uh, poll workers are not trained to identify fraudulent ID. The only people who are really good at that are TSA agents and uh, bouncers at college bars. Other than that, <laughs> people can't identify a fraudulent ID very well. And so what what we discovered from our research is that that's not an effective way to actually uh, catch fraudulent behavior. And on top of that, what we saw in some of our studies, something that was very disturbing, is photo ID is implemented widely. And if the poll workers are worried about you know, fraudulent behavior, what we discovered was that those poll workers, if they are true, meaning they, they're worried about it and they're going to be strict about looking at this ID, there's a group that's going to be disenfranchised disproportionately more than any other group. No one's talked about this. Everyone's talked about, well, cost to get an ID, poll tax, all that stuff. There's another problem. That is women. Women are more likely not to look like their ID than men. Therefore, if I'm seriously considering an ID and I'm a poll worker and I'm not trained at fraudulent ID, I am more likely to turn away a woman than someone else. So these are just some examples of our research and voting that we've been doing. And uh, we're changing the way voting is going to be done in the United States. And, you know, everyone that's listening, in the next five years or so, you will vote on a technology that was either created by my lab or inspired by the research that we're doing. Wow, that's that's intense. That's that's powerful when you really just stop and, and listen to that. I mean that that is really awesome and, and that gives the, the young people something to 
you know, something bigger than themselves, you know, to, to know that they're a part of that. And that, that kind of lends itself to something that those of us who are in IT kind of get it. Um, maybe we didn't know it even in, in college, but one of the things is people in IT are problem solvers. The things that you're complaining about or frustrated with or think that are even injustices, you can balance those things out, and it all ties back to technology um, is the solution to so many things that, that, you know, are frustrating us or concerning us now. And so when you talk about changing the, the world, you know, technology is going to have a hand in many different aspects of that, no matter what industry we're, we're, we're talking about. So. And not only that, uh, Clemson is leading that charge, and the doctor and his staff there are doing a fantastic job in uh, bringing the young people in and creating this great opportunity for them in the IT community and, and solving some of these real-world problems. I must take my hat off to you and your staff staff there, Doctor. You guys are doing a fantastic job. Yeah. And, and, and really yeah. excited that you're, you're sharing here with us today on Technology Expresso Cafe. And, and that brings me to a, a, another one that sparked my interest. I, I saw something about voice texting, and I was thinking I could use that. <laughs> Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So uh, we created a technology we refer to it as voicing. That's V-O-I-C-E. Yes, it has an E, I-N-G. We spelled it that way on purpose, voicing. And what voicing does is an alternative to distracted driving or texting while driving. So we were looking at the issues of texting while driving, and we saw people dying from this. And we research tells us that if you give someone to look at something, something to look at while they're driving, and they don't need to look at it, they're going to look at it anyway. So if you have uh, text messages show up on your phone, even if the phone reads it to you, they still look at it. Uh, GPS, think about GPS. How many people use GPS in their cars? And it's telling you the directions, and people still look at it. So from these observations, we decided to take a different approach. We created voicing, which is a true hands-free, eyes-free approach to communicating. So the way it works is a very simple premise. If you walk into a meeting, you take your cell phone and you put it on silent, vibrate, or you turn it off, what you're doing is effectively controlling how people reach you. We felt we could do the same thing with voicing. So we created modes for, uh, for messaging. So the first mode is text, meaning you send me a text, it shows up as a text. Uh, the second mode is email. You send me a text, it goes to my email. And the third mode is voice. Now, all three of these can be active at the same time or any combination. So the voice mode is when you send me a text, what happens is my phone rings and I press a button and it comes on and the text message is read to me. And then I can send and reply messages with my voice. So when I'm driving, my phone is on voice and email. So someone sends me a text, it can go to my email, and my phone rings and I can hear it, and I can just say reply, uh, and then I record it, and it goes to them. So that what happens when the message gets to you, if I send you a voicing message, it, it can transcribe it for text and email, but an email it also attaches the audio, for example, if I send something to you, it records it and sends the audio, the MP3 attached. But when it calls you, it actually just plays the message. So you hear it. It doesn't have to transcribe it. So we took this technology and we did studies with a driving simulator, and we compared it against people talking to other people in the car, people talking on a cell phone. Uh, and what we found was fascinating. Uh, this method of communicating short messages is actually less distracting than talking to someone in a car. So, which was fascinating for us to see that. Um, but it's true that this kind of this approach is less distracting. And so, we're going to do another round of studies in the next month, what we call a naturalistic study, where we're actually going to use real cars. So, we use a simulator first, then we're going to use uh, real cars in the next round of studies. 
So th- this is what we do. We we come up with an idea. Uh, we do a design, and after we do the design, we uh, we actually go out and build it, and we test it. So I, I think at this point we're in a testing phase, and this technology uh, we're planning to actually put in uh, cars and phones and allow people to have access to it. If you want to see how it works, you can go to uh, voice text, texting research uh, dot I think it's dot com dot com yeah voice texting research dot com and you can see a video. Uh, of this technology. That that is awesome, and we will be posting all of your links uh, so that you can can follow up on this technology and all the other uh, initiatives under uh, Dr. Gilbert. So uh, we will be providing those links if you're listening to the, the show as well. So so in, in in your point of view, how, how far away do you think we are before we, this is something that we might see mainstream? I mean, in, in your your guesstimation, I guess. It's tough to say. This this technology is we're trying to take it to market, uh, and so we're looking for entrepreneurs that be willing to to lead it. This is not something I'm going to be the CEO of, <laughs> but we would <laughs> like to see it get. Uh, so it's hard to say. I mean, the technology is mature. We could launch it within a year if someone was to invest in it. I mean, we can demo it, and I have it working for me and my students, but we haven't scaled it up. So it's just a matter of, of whether people will, will try it. But that's why we're doing the studies is to give evidence and confidence that this stuff works. I mean, there was a study done that showed the opposite, where they, they, they took people and let them use some tools that they were unfamiliar with, and they, they made, the study protocol was not very well designed and uh, it showed some negative results. But our technology has been just the exact opposite. So... I'm hopeful that we'll get it in within, I would say, the next three to five years, but it could be sooner. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised the automotive industry hasn't come knocking on their door already looking to demo it in some of the new model uh, vehicles uh, right now. uh, I agree. It sounds like it's just maybe a a few years away from hitting the market. Absolutely. And I I know I would be in line for that uh, because, like you said, you know, just like you stated, it's going to save lives. That, that's the bottom line. Uh, it, 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 you know, we've got to get people away from uh, texting and driving, and um, I'm definitely interested in, in, in something like that. So I'm going to keep my eyes and ears open. And, of course, uh, we're, we're happy to, you know, when, when you have updates for us, our mic is open to you, and we look forward to having you back, having your students back anytime on, on the show. So, so do keep us uh, posted on that. Um, let me ask you, I'm, I got my list, so I'm going to keep going. My next one was Applications Quest. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. So Applications Quest is a technology I created in response to the 2003 United States Supreme Court hearings on affirmative action with the University of Michigan. Uh, I'll never forget it. In June 2003, uh, I was watching the results. And I turned on the TV and I did a split screen. I saw on one side the people for it were celebrating, people against it were celebrating. Both sides had won. And at that moment it occurred to me that uh, everybody got it wrong. The Supreme Court is wrong. The plaintiffs, the defendants, all of them are wrong. And what proves my point even further, we just had a case, uh, University of Texas, the Fisher case. If they had fixed this in Michigan, we wouldn't have had that case. So clearly they didn't get it right, but here's the problem. The problem isn't about race, gender, national origin, uh, any of those attributes. That that has nothing to do with it. What this really has to do with it, I call it a capacity issue. You have more qualified applicants than you have available slots or offers. Under that scenario, by definition, you're going to turn away someone who's qualified. Well, you turn away someone who's qualified, motivated, smart, resourceful, you end up in court. And so what they do is they look and say, well, why didn't I get accepted? Why didn't I get in? Did they let someone else in? And they try and figure it out, and they use race as a scapegoat. Even if you take race, ethnicity out of all decisions, 
I would predict within five years we'll be back at the Supreme Court, but this time it would be on first generation. It would be on legacies or athletes. It's because of the capacity issue. Well, what I did was I wrote this software called Applications Quest, which addresses the capacity issue. And Applications Quest is a data mining tool that allows admissions and hiring people to create uh, these clusters or groups of qualified applicants based on their holistic similarity. So what that means is this software takes two applications and can compare them and measure their, their similarity or difference. As human beings, we can look at two identical applications and say they're 100% similar, 0% different. But if I change the GPA on one and the major on the other, that's what we break down. You can't measure that. Well, this software can do that, and we were just awarded a patent on the algorithm to do this. So what does that mean? That means if you give me a group of qualified applicants, I can compare them all to each other and put them in clusters or groups, and then the software recommends an applicant from each cluster. So uh, what we've done, we've done over 30 studies with universities and other admissions officers. And in the study cases, what we've done is we go to a university, and I can't tell you all of them. Uh, they gag me typically because they were worried that we would embarrass them. But anyway, what we do is we go in there, and they give us the, the applicant pool from, say, last year that they admitted. And we run it through Applications Quest and we compare Applications Quest recommendations against their uh, emissions. And what we found in every single study, the applications are different, but in every case what we discovered was the Applications Quest recommends a holistically more diverse uh, applicant pool or recommended pool than the admissions committee. It does it in a fraction of the time. We're talking minutes versus uh, weeks, months. And then, the one thing that was most fascinating is in every case, we reached the same academic achievement levels as the admissions group. So what does that mean? That's the big finding of this. There's a myth. It's always been there that if you're going to have diversity, you have to sacrifice quality. Well, we can technically prove that is false. This technology can take a group of applicants and create a holistically more diverse recommended pool that has the same academic achievement levels as a committee. So the software, uh, it became a company. Uh, we're in the process of uh, getting it out there. We are in a pilot right now with the Physician Assistance Education Association. Uh, we're talking to the Association of American Medical Colleges. Uh, Clemson University is using this in the nursing school. Uh, there are a few other places that are using it I can't speak to right now. But it's, it's getting out there, and we're hoping that the courts will take a look. Right now, Texas, on November the 13th, the Fifth Circuit is going to go back and hear the case of Fisher uh, against UT Austin. And the Supreme Court kicked it back there for, for lack of strict scrutiny at the Fifth Circuit. So they're going to hear it again. Well, I hope that someone will say, have you guys looked at Applications Quest? I hope this someone would tell them to check us out because we can prove that this tool is not given preferential treatment to race or any other attribute. And I use that word proof, meaning I can prove it. I'm not saying I think or I guess. I'm telling you I can prove it. It does what, it, what people can't do, but it doesn't take out subjectivity. There's still subjectivity, meaning you can read essays and put the information in there. It doesn't automatically read an essay. People still read those. But we, this tool gives you the solution to affirmative action. If you want to see more about it, just go to affirmativeactionsolved.com or applicationsquest.com, and you can could, you could see it. But uh, many people say, nah, you can't do that. This really works the way I'm describing it. I'm not, you know, exaggerating. This is what, what works and how it works, and this is what we're doing. Absolutely, and and again, we'll we'll be providing the links after the show to our our listeners and to those who listen to the archive. And and just listening to you, there is no doubt in my mind why you have such a long list of honors and awards. Um, uh, just you know, year after year, named you know top uh, ten technology innovators by the Chronicle of Higher Education. 
receiving achievement awards from the Richard Tapia uh, Chairman's Award for Achievement, um, named one of the 2012 the Route 100 Black Influencers and Achievers. I could go on and on, and, and, and it's just, you, and you deserve it. I mean, you know, one of the things that comes to mind, you're kind of, you're, you're hitting some really tough areas and helping to uh, use technology, I think, to break down some, some barriers, some things that I think have perplexed us in a, a lot of ways, equality um, and, and making sure you, you mentioned about uh, women and the, the voting and them being discriminated against, not even realizing that that's the, the potential opportunity there, uh, opening doors to exposure through lab days. You know, people joke with with me and David about when do we have time to sleep with all the stuff that we do with technology radio. I'm I'm embarrassed compared to you. I, I don't even know how you have time. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, your plate is really full, and and I'm not even down my list yet. Um, so um, just just, uh, just amazing. And the one I like is name one of the fifty most important African Americans in technology. I think I came in at something like 52. Oh, and you really did. That's like you did. Uh, but no, uh, you know, the, the awards I know will, will continue to come. And and let me ask you, because again, I, I had my own questions, and again, we, we offer our listeners, those in the chat room and, and those live on the phone, you can press 1 if you'd like to ask a live question. Or if you're in the chat room, you can uh, type in a question, and we'll be happy to answer on the phone. Please don't be shy. We have the pleasure of having uh, Dr. Juan Gilbert here from Clemson University, and uh, uh, he's, he's been an open book. He, he hasn't turned down any of my questions so far, so uh, feel free, and, and we, we hope to have him back again if, if we don't get your question in tonight. But talk to me a little bit because, you know, I got my degree uh, some time ago in computer science, but you are, are focusing on some of the areas, and, and maybe you can expand upon them and help help me to understand and maybe even our listeners. You know, human-centered computing, uh, I read about that, and then also this ethno uh, computing. Can you share with us a little bit even what that is? What's the scope of that? Uh, certainly. Uh, Human-centered computing is a relatively new discipline in computing, and it deals with, from our perspective, innovation, applied research, things like that. So we solve real-world problems by integrating people, technology, culture, policy, uh, all of these things under one umbrella. And so our students are trained on how to build and design and evaluate technology. <coughs> Excuse me one second. Let me get a drink. Not oh, we, we appreciate. <laughs> we know you've been doing a lot of talking. <laughs> and, okay. and again, ladies and gentlemen, we're speaking with Dr. Juan Gilbert from Clemson University. Visit our website. We will have the, the link to the uh, various uh, uh, websites that he mentioned on today's show, including Lab Days, where they record actually themselves in labs, and you can see them live. Um, so, so please visit there. That's L-A-B-D-A-Z-E dot com. And there will be much more, again, posted on our website as well at technologyexpresso.com. So, uh, Dr. Gilbert, back to you. Okay, I'm back. Okay, sorry about that. But human-centered computing, we integrate all these elements, and our students learn how to identify a problem, design a solution, build a proof of concept, and evaluate in the context with the constituents that matter. So it's very interdisciplinary, collaborative, and it's uh, relatively new. We have a Ph.D. program in human-centered computing. Georgia Tech has one, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and more places are getting them. Now, ethno-computing is an extension of what we call ethno-mathematics, which is the idea of doing culturally relevant mathematics or culturally relevant computing. So ethno-computing deals with the computing and integration of ethnicity or culture in those artifacts. As an example... I always ask, uh, and this is a challenge question for everyone, 
Uh, is it possible for you to create anything in the absence of who you are? And I say, no, it's not. So if you look at any technology or anything that's been created, it, you look at it, you can see elements of that person in that invention, who they are, et cetera. So we study how to create things from a culturally relevant perspective to influence learning, behavior, et cetera. So that's ethno-computing and human-centered computing. Thank you. And, again, that, that was uh, something new for me, and, and, and uh, I appreciate you sharing that, that with us. Um, I, I want to kind of uh, bridge that into, because you mentioned this as well, the, the technology in the classroom, whether it's at the college level, but even in the, the, the high school level, um, to prepare young people for how uh, technology is going to permeate so much of their world, especially in, in the future. What are your thoughts about uh, learning technology, technology in the classroom? Well, what, what do you see for the vision in, in the future? Well, um, it's, it's here in many respects. Uh, you hear people talk MOOCs all the time and things like that. Uh, online learning is here. The question is, will it be effective? And how will we make it more effective? So, I mean, we've done research in that area. Uh, my dissertation was actually in that area. I created what's called MISL, a multiple instructor single learner model where uh, it changes the instructional model. So in tutoring, you have one instructor and one uh, student. In a classroom, one instructor and many students. So I flipped it and said, what if you had one student, and for every student you had many instructors who all taught the same subject, but they explained it a different way. And in that environment, I was able to show that I can improve learning outcomes significantly. So if you look at that and you said, well, the future of online learning, what will it be? I think it will be more of, of this scenario of being able to get multiple examples or explanations of things you need to learn. So learning from a tr traditional one source or one person, and we see that movement now. Uh, it, you don't have to do that anymore with technology. It used to be the case you go to class and you have to learn from that instructor with that book, that text. Now the resources are infinite and available uh, not only for the privileged but just about everyone. So I think online learning is here. It's here to stay. Uh, the way it will morph uh, into the future is yet to be seen. Obviously mobile devices and things, you can look, get content there. But I think it's going to be more about how do I get answers to this question and get it explained to me in multiple ways so I can truly learn from it. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, I, I want to invite people and, and share with them that you actually uh, were a speaker uh, at TED regarding uh, revolutionizing teaching. And uh, at one of the TED Talks, and I believe that I know that that's available on YouTube, and want to encourage people to go out there and, and to visit and to uh, look that up and uh, learn more about your your views on that. And uh, kudos to you as well as being a part of the the uh, the TED Talks. So congratulations yep. on that as well. <laughs> you. Um, you you've had a lot of exciting experiences. Is there is there one that that really you know uh, even even surprised you or really uh, resonates with you? I know we've been trying to highlight some of the many awards and accolades and and things that you've been a part of. Is is there one that that you, that maybe we haven't touched upon that really is near and dear to you? Uh, probably the the highlight right now would be uh, last year. I had the honor of being recognized uh, by President Obama for the Presidential Award for Excellence in Mentoring uh, of Science, Mathematics, and Engineering Mentoring. And so getting to meet President Obama was uh, a thrill, a highlight. That's something you never forget. So I had to put that at the top of the list right now. That That's probably the biggest thing so far. And and that that's awesome, and and, and I, I know that again 
we have a lot of young people. We have people that we tutor and mentor that uh, are followers of the show. And, and for them to hear that here's someone in IT, again, it's like, what? You're not a doctor? You're not a lawyer? You're not, you know, you're not uh, in entertainment? You're not an uh, athlete? Uh, you're in IT, and look how prolific and how profound and, and how you are changing the world and impacting the, the world and uh, um, a problem solver out there. So, the, you know, the sky's the limit. And, and I, I think that that should come across to anybody that listens to the, tonight's show and, and, and certainly follow the, the, the links that, that we're going to share. Um, but, you know, I, I really appreciate you, you sharing that with us. And, and it just you're just so down to earth and open in and, and sharing that. You know, some people uh, in, this, this, in your place might be an elitist. You know, but I don't get that in any shape or form. As, as a matter of fact, you're trying to bring along as many people as you can as you uh, as you make your way and, and, and achieve these things. So, you know, I, I just can't say enough. And again, we're, we're very honored to have you uh, on the show. I, I, I want to uh, change up my, my question format just a little bit because I'm actually looking at uh, com, And, in fact, you have a couple of quotes that really intrigued me. And, and I want to ask you about those quotes. Uh, one is a credit to yourself, but but share with us. One says, "Waste talent without confidence. Uh, diverse mind created creates diverse solutions." Talk to our audience, and when you that that quote, what, what's something that you want to leave with our audience? <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, when I looked at waste uh, equals talent without confidence. Uh, that is, tells it all. Uh, there are a lot of talented people out there. And if you look in any profession, and in particular in the African-American community, we look at entertainers. And, I, you know, Michael Jordan is an example. I don't think there's ever been a person more confident than Michael Jordan. But at the same time, you have to say there's never been a basketball player as good as Michael Jordan. Everyone who's at the top of their game is very confident. And so that, with that quote, I often say, you know, waste is talent without confidence because you have the talent, but you have to have the confidence that you can achieve things. If you don't have that confidence, then you're wasting your talent. And with that comes responsibility. I often say know what you know, meaning you have to know what it is you know. You can't know what you think. You have to know what you know. So when I have to go before Congress, when I have to speak in these engagements with hundreds or thousands of people, when I give testimony, I have to speak from a position of confidence and authority by knowing what it is I actually know. I can't go there and, and, and think things. I can't say, well, I think it's this. I have to say, I know it's this, like the applications question. I can't say, I think it gives you holistic diversity. I think it doesn't uh, 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 contradict court rulings. I have to walk in and say, I know. So you have to know what it is you know, and you have to be confident in what it is you know and be able to share that with others. And so that's where those quotes are coming from. And thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Well, I, I must ask you, Doctor, coming up and we know uh, how you got into IT and what drives you, can you share with us who your mentors were? Who who inspired you and uh coming up through the ranks and 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 gave you and continue to give you that passion? Who who has who and what individuals would you like to uh um mention here as individuals that inspired you? Well, uh, when I was getting my PhD, I didn't have any. That that was part of the problem, it was just me. But then as I got my Ph.D., I picked up several mentors. Uh, probably first on my list would be uh, Dr. Bryant York at Portland State University, uh, Dr. Richard Tapia at Rice University, Dr. Andrea Lawrence at Spelman Co uh, College. Um, I have to also say I have a new mentor, actually. I just, I just got a new mentor, like, last week, Dr. Uh, uh, William Julius Wilson at Harvard. Uh, so I, I'm still getting getting mentoring. Mentoring is a lifelong process. You never get to the point where you don't need a mentor. 
so you always need these mentors. Roscoe Giles at Boston uh, University, BU. Uh, all of these people have played instrumental roles uh, in my professional development. And I have peer mentors, Dr. Brian Blake at uh, University of Miami, Dr. Andrew Williams at Marquette, uh, Dr. Gerlando Jackson at Wisconsin-Madison, Chance Lewis at UNC Charlotte. All of these guys in particular, we were together getting our PhDs, and we're all part of the, of the crew. We help each other. So this journey started out as an isolated endeavor for me, and that changed. Now I have mentors and colleagues, and we help and support each other. So it we're often thinking that I have to do this on my own. No one does it on their own. And if they say they're doing it on their own, they're just not being honest. And maybe they don't know that they didn't do it on their own. But it takes, it really does take a village to do this. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, we're speaking with Dr. Juan E. Gilbert of Clemson University, human-centered computing, uh, presidential award, for excellence in science, math, and engineering mentoring, electronic voting, ethno-computing, the list goes on. Jacqueline. Absolutely. And, and the voice text, that's the one that I'm, I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> lab days and so much more. But please, um, he's out on the uh, Internet in many forms and fashion. Please visit uh, juangilbert.com. Um, and, and follow this young man, I will say, uh, very successful already and, and more success to come. Um, so, so watch him. And, and even from a distance, you know, you, I think you are inspiration, uh, someone that young people can look up to. Just as you mentioned, at the time when you were um, going through and getting your Ph.D., they didn't have anyone that they could look to. But this is why we're using the media and mechanisms that, that we have at hand to um, make the world aware of the Juan Gilberts and that uh, so that if they can see it, then they can be it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Audience, if you're looking for a university to go to that's going to drive that passion and get your education from people that look like you, especially in the African-American community, I think Clemson University is one of the premier universities in the country. Absolutely, and they're, they're very lucky to have Dr. Juan Gilbert. So, uh, again, um, our time is, is winding down here. We thank you for your, your time. Um, um, you, you've given us so much information, so much for, for our audience. And, again, our mic is available to you anytime. So just keep us posted, and uh, we'll, we'll clear a date whenever you're, you're ready to come back. So not, not, on, not only that, Dr. Gilbert, this video broadcast will be in our archive for a long, long time to come. So we'll be sending you the link, and you can share it with the other young people and students and young junior professors. We want to get the word out about you and your program at Clemson University and see if we can drive, you know, the, the young population and beat on the door at Clemson asking to get in there. Well, thank you very much. And I will, I will tell you now that uh, let's, let's look for a date in uh, late March, early April. I have a new project. We're going to launch it and announce it in March. It's called Project Hero. So everybody make a note of that, Project Hero. This project, project. is addressing gun violence in schools. Ah. Awesome, awesome. Once again, like I said, you you just leading the pack. And one of the things that I'm going to say right here on, on the show, because we have a, a great relationship with uh, uh, BDPA um, and with their, their young people in their uh, high school uh, computer competition program and um, I'm very much in, in touch with them, and, and just last night we had one of their success stories on. I know the uh, current coordinator as well as the uh, outgoing and the new president has been on uh, Technology Express and will be on Technology Express. So we'll also make sure that they tune into that show. Uh, you said that was March, was it? And in March. It will be a big media announcement about it. Uh, as you can imagine, gun violence is a hot issue, and we have a solution that we're going to launch. Uh, Verizon is a sponsor in this, by the way, so it, it's a big deal. 
Talking about leaving the best for last. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you once again, and, and we'll be right here for you as a vehicle to, to help promote that any way we can. And, and again, thank you for your time. Uh, um, thank you for uh, being a, a part of our show today. And uh, with that, I think we're going to call it a show. Yes, thank you very much, Dr. Gilbert. Uh, tune in anytime, everyone. Reach us at technologyexpresso.com. That's E-X. P R E S S O dot com um, and dial tune in for our uh, regular broadcast and our archive where you'll find this show as well as others. Thanks again, Dr. Gilbert. Good night. Thank you.